0: The Air War Project, Episode 1, Air Power, Turning Points, Triumphs, and Challenges. Welcome to the Air War Project, a podcast dedicated to everything air power. I am Tommy Jack, and along with Scott Horn at the controls, we will be your guides for the duration of this series as we shine a light on some of the many fascinating subjects, events, and personalities that have shaped the history of aerial warfare. It has now been over 100 years since the airplane arrived over the battlefield and changed the way in which wars were fought. The Air War Project will take you on a journey through the fascinating world of air combat, aircraft histories, great pilots and leaders, campaigns that changed wars, and the great ideas that shaped air power. Today's episode, Air Power, Turning Points, Triumphs, and Challenges, will serve as a sort of general introduction to the subject, and range far and wide, covering the turning points over the past century, where air power reached the crossroads and took a new direction. We will start at the beginning of the twentieth century, when airplanes were nothing more than rudimentary contraptions of wood, wire, and stretched canvas that were more likely to kill their pilots than do real damage to the enemy, and will conclude with today's integrated and networked weapon systems that seem to have more in common with science fiction than their piston-powered progenitors. In between we will touch upon air power's stunning growth during World War II, its leading role in the beginnings of the Cold War, its manifest limits as shown in Vietnam, and its resurgence during the 1980s as part of the micro-circuit driven revolution in military affairs. Lots of stuff to cover So let's get the ball rolling. All right, so as announced, let's turn to the earliest days of the airplane and the thinkers who shaped emerging conceptions of air warfare. So perhaps we can start with a statement about what air power is and how it's come to be defined. Air power, broadly speaking, is the ability to project military power from the sky and increasingly space and even cyberspace to influence the behavior of people or the course of events. It can also be considered as the total potential of a nation to deliver effects from the sky. But, however you define it, powered flight and along with it the practical concept of air power, begins in earnest in 1903 with the Wright brothers' first flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Although their first flight was a milestone in the history of aviation, it received a muted reception in the press and was initially either outright doubted or dismissed as not long or high enough to be relevant. But the brothers quickly built on the knowledge of that first flight and designed ever more refined versions of the Wright flyer so that within just a few short years they had a fully controllable airplane at their disposal. European inventors were not far behind with notables like Gabriel Voisin, the Short Brothers, and Brazil's Santos Dumont making rapid progress on controlling their flying machines. But thinking about air power begins much earlier than that, and here is where we turn to the great authors of fiction and the visionaries, H.G. Wells being most prominent among them. It might be said that air power and even more so strategic air power the knockout blow from the air was an idea waiting for an implement a sort of proto theory of air power existed in the popular imaginations of authors inventors and theologians alike well before the controlled powered flight that made its execution possible flight was a divine power and the heroes of mythology often featured some ability to command flight Whether it was the ancient Greeks who imagined lightning bolts from the sky, delivered unerringly by not always benevolent deities, or the Romans who worshipped flying gods such as Mercury the messenger, the concept of flight was reserved for divine beings, and birds of course. And for those mortals who might want to try it, the hapless mythological duo of Icarus and Daedalus stood as a cautionary tale of the hubris of human-born flight. By the 19th century, the inauguration of the Industrial Age, and along with it the burgeoning concept of total war, began to impact the fictional conceptualizations of aircraft as instruments of war. Albert Robida's 1883 work, War in the Twentieth Century, discussed the possibility of unimpeded aerial bombardment by flying machines against defenseless population and industrial centers. Ivan Bloch's 1898 multi-volume treaties on warfare echoed a similar sentiment. Rapid technological progress implied a great potential for the air weapon, so great that a British officer studying its future impact on warfare suggested that the mere arrival of an aerial fleet over the enemy capital would probably conclude the campaign then and there. But of all the air power visionaries, H.G. Wells is most associated today with the type of air power prophecy that would come to define the movement. His terrifying fictional accounts of future war, notably in The War in the Air and In the World Set Free, portended most vividly the potential of air power to hold entire nations hostage and effect civilizational collapse. Aircraft operated in the third dimension, a medium that held no regard for geography and respected no national sanctuaries. All targets were exposed to attack from the air regardless of the defending land forces in being. Wells observed, in the air there are no streets, no channels, no point where one can say of an antagonist, if he wants to reach my capital, he must come by here. All directions lead everywhere. If aircraft could bypass fielded armies and ignore geographic constraints, then a nation's nerve system, military historian Basil Liddell Hart enthused, would no longer be covered by the flesh of its troops. To its rapidly coalescing support base in the military and civilian spheres, the airplane revolutionized warfare and rendered obsolete historical assumptions about war. How could it not? The airplane's ability to bypass or seize the enemy by the throat signified a revolutionary change in warfare. Air power, its most strident advocates maintained, was first and foremost a psychological weapon, capable of producing effects far in excess of its material destructive potential. Wells' narratives of unfettered destruction from the air resonated in the popular imaginations of millions of readers. And brought to light the type of psychological effect classical air power theory would be founded upon indeed the psychology of fear so pervaded early conceptions of air power that its accompanying language developed suitably emotive characteristics terms such as nerve centers vital centers shock sudden paralysis and brain warfare permeated the early air power lexicon and evoked images of warfare unlike any which had been practiced before Of course, all armed conflict is to a lesser or greater extent psychological, but the belief in the air weapon's particularly disproportionate effect, outwardly given weight by popular and professional responses to the prospect of coming under aerial attack, underpinned the theory of air power and its understanding as a qualitatively different instrument of war. The conviction in the obsolescence of traditional calculations of military power and national strength gained currency within air power circles. Air power theorists consigned historical experience to irrelevance and seemed to speak a language so new that translating it into traditional concepts of military thinking was impossible. If throughout history strategic thinking had been mostly positional, the occupation of capitals, straits, ports, and winning a war was indispensable to pursuing strategic aims, The airplane's ability to bypass fielded forces and strike directly at the enemy signified a revolutionary change in warfare. But in truth, the continuing divide between the theory of air power and its reality remained quite vast. Although the aircraft's theoretical ability to strike at the heart of the enemy remained at the core of its transformative potential, its practical employment in such a manner remained dependent on a level of innovative and risky thinking that higher echelons of the ground-bound military leadership were reluctant to adopt. Air Power's supporters resided primarily in the civilian ranks and in small pockets of visionary but junior professional cadres who were regarded by the senior military leadership rather as Jules Verne types, harmless and occasionally amusing but needful of monitoring lest their ideas become too fanciful and disruptive. Even within these pioneering cadres, the apocalyptic predictions of Wells's ilk remain difficult to reconcile with the wood, fabric, and wire constructions that represented early twentieth century aviation state of the art. And so it would take a world war to give impetus to the fledgling air weapon as a viable tool of warfare. As part of this process, during which airmen overcame the military establishment's entrenched opposition to the aircraft as a war weapon at all, let alone a war-winning weapon, airmen doggedly fought an uphill battle against the orthodoxy of conventional military thinking. It was a rather ironic process, although the value of the high ground in warfare was certainly recognized by army men. Making the conceptual leap into the three-dimensional high ground of flight proved too far a stretch for much of the army leadership. The scale of the problem for airmen was formidable. In 1913, French Marshal Ferdinand Foch opined dismissively, Aviation is fine as a sport. I even wish officers would practice the sport, as it accustoms them to risk. But as an instrument of war, it is worthless. The outlook in Britain was no better. Conventional thinking accepted aircraft as useful in battlefield spotting, but foresaw little more. In America, army leadership envisioned the airplane in similarly unimaginative terms, as an adjunct to ground armies and operating within the confines of existing doctrine and tactics. Such thinking should hardly have been unexpected. Although militaries often pursue the latest technological developments, They do not in a strict sense always pursue innovation. As large, rigid bureaucracies, militaries often prefer to adapt new technology to fit existing missions and methods. As a consequence, airmen coexisted in the same doctrinal space as advocates of armor, their contemporary land-based harbingers of change. Like the aircraft, the tanks' advantages of speed and mobility were initially hobbled by restrictive methods of employment notably being tied to the infantry. And this point is as good as any to turn to our military air power theorists, the Italian General Giulio Duhay, the British Marshal Hugh Trenchard, and the American General William Billy Mitchell. Of course, there were many other thinkers who impacted the early development of air power. Slesser, the Saversky, Gorel come readily to mind. But it was Duhay, Trenchard, and Mitchell who have historically come to define the movement to promote the airplane as a weapon of war and establish independent air forces with autonomy over their own operations. Of course, all three dealt with the same fundamental problem, that their belief in the revolutionary nature of air power was neither universally accepted by their superiors nor easily put into practice given the technology of the time. Although the airplane had made great strides during World War I, It was not nearly enough to secure its hoped-for preeminent position within national defense hierarchies. Air power had been largely used as a supporting element for the ground battle and not the war-ending instrument of destruction predicted by its proponents. Observation and reconnaissance, followed by attack, were its primary functions. It was in many ways perceived and utilized as an extension of artillery, both as its eyes and its reach. In this use it offered many advantages. It could, for instance, attack positions on the leeward side of a hill or behind man-made obstructions. It was also valuable for reconnaissance, behind the enemy lines to observe and spot mass movements. The immense value of aircraft as a support element was quickly recognized, and that in itself represented tremendous progress. The fighter mission developed early in the war as a response to the reconnaissance and attack roles was one unexpected development in air power. Its tasking was to allow observation and attack aircraft to operate freely, to deny enemy aircraft similar operations, and to generally inflict as much damage on the enemy as possible. But if these were to be the only roles for air power, then its continued subordination to ground elements seemed logical. But the theorists argued, and almost had the chance to prove, that the true usefulness of air power was in the long-range bombing of enemy cities and industries far beyond the stalemate of the battlefield trenches. The creation of the Inter-Allied Independent Air Force in 1918, led by Hugh Trenchard, and designed to take the war effort directly to the enemy capitals, was a concrete step in that direction. It was imminently to go into action when the armistice was signed. And so, for air power advocates, the First World War ended too early. Air power was in the ascendancy, and if the bomber would always get through, as the popular expression of the time went, growth in the effectiveness of the bomber, air power supporters argued, would by 1919 have brought Germany to its knees. And there were reasons to believe a paradigmic change was in the offing. The massive Handley-Page V-1500s of the independent force had at last reached the western front, imminently to be used against Berlin. Mitchell and the U.S. Army Air Service, which, like its British counterpart, had been hampered by a dearth of suitable airplanes, was undertaking similar preparations. But time ran out for the airmen before their revolutionary plans could take flight, and what they had to show for their efforts was a mixed bag of results. During the war, the Battle of St. Mihiel saw an unprecedented mass force of 1,500 aircraft led by Mitchell conducting successful fighter and attack missions in support of advancing ground units. This was undoubtedly a huge step forward for air power, and was rightly feted for years afterwards, but it was not strategic. The best-known strategic attacks were conducted by Germany against London as early as 1915, and could justifiably lay claim to pioneering the practical concept of city bombing. But these raids were sporadic, lacked accuracy and payload, and were generally susceptible to countermeasures, particularly in the case where Zeppelins were employed as the bombers. Still, these actions were notable for their novelty and the real fear that they instilled in London's population, and, it must be said, the resources and men and material that they diverted from the front for the defense of the city, but otherwise were almost insignificant from a military point of view. The war indisputably confirmed at least one general principle of air power, that geography or island status, as was the case in Great Britain, was largely immaterial to the projection of power deep into the mainland. The airplane allowed the combatant not only the ability to attack enemy fortifications at the front line, but to sidestep the battlefield altogether and strike at the centers of enemy power. Here the theorists were absolutely correct, even if the state of the art of aviation design could not quite yet match its potential. With the war over and the post-war drawdown underway, Duhay, Trenchard, and Mitchell strived to maintain the gains they had made during the war and promoted their expanded vision of air warfare. Trenchard was in the enviable position of heading the recently established and independent Royal Air Force, although he would soon have his hands full trying to keep the RAF alive as an independent service against opposition from both the Navy and Army. Duhay, who continued to write primarily for his Italian audience, but whose writings influenced all subsequent theorists, single-mindedly agitated for the construction of a fleet of large strategic multi-engine bombers, or battle planes as he called them, of which a mere 20, the general claimed in one case, would suffice to break up the whole social structure of the enemy in less than a week, no matter what his army and navy may do. Similarly, Mitchell maintained that destruction of national war-making potential what he called the manufactories, the means of communication, the food products, even the farms, the fuel and oil, and the places where people live and carry on their lives, was the true objective of war operations. Echoing Duhay's bravado, Mitchell projected that aircraft operating in the heart of an enemy's country would accomplish the collapse of civilian and political will to resist in an incredibly short space of time and the months and even years of contests of ground armies, with a loss of millions of lives, would be eliminated in the future. Paradoxically, then, the argument for the ruthlessness of strategic or terror bombing was a moral one, based on the aircraft's ability to threaten the weak underbelly of civil society and bring to an end the battlefield butchery of wars past. Duhay, Trenchard and Mitchell, at least outwardly, were making a case for bombardment being a more humane means of waging war. But in order to make reality of their pronouncements, they argued for the following five interrelated conditions to be accepted. That an independent air mission existed. That is to say, that air power could achieve effects entirely independently of ground or naval operations that an air force should be an independent and at minimum co-equal arm with the other services. This one flowed from the first point in that if an independent mission existed then it ought to be carried out by an independent service. That airmen must command air forces because only airmen could understand and employ the unique potential of air power. That air power must be concentrated under the theater air commander, not parceled out to individual combat units. This was the dreaded penny packet problem from World War II, where army units down to brigade level, or even smaller, wanted their own control of their own small air forces to provide round-the-clock top cover. And finally, that strategic air power employment through bombardment was the most effective use of an air force. That last point meant that gaining command of the air through primarily offensive air operations was the proper employment of air power, and that once achieved, neutralizing or destroying the enemy's vital centers by targeting strategic targets, however those were defined, was the final and war-concluding objective of an air campaign. This was a bold and innovative vision of warfare. But in hindsight, it seems clear now that not one of the theorists went to any great length to actually identify the vital centers which, if destroyed, would allow victory. Neither did they systematically develop their theories or support their statements with any rigorous analysis. Trenchard's oft-repeated and totally unsubstantiated claim that the psychological or the moral effects of bombing in relation to the material effects were in the ratio of 20 to 1, was perhaps the most forcefully stated and grossly unsubstantiated example of its kind. Nevertheless, the logic contained within these arguments proved surprisingly resilient, continuing to delineate the limits and broadly define the air power debate long after the men who put them forward ceased to be personally influential. So, for example, in America, even as Mitchell's political influence waned, following his court-martial, airmen took up the slack to carry his ideas forward. The campaign to keep air power at the forefront of the political and public conscience was undertaken by the Air Corps Tactical School. Established in 1920 at Langley Field and from 1931 operating from Maxwell Field in Alabama, the Air Corps Tactical School's officially declared mission was to teach air officers the techniques of air combat. Its undeclared mission, however, was to create independent air power doctrine for the fledgling air corps. American strategic bombing theory, codified in clearly defined doctrine, was born, nurtured, and implemented within Maxwell's closely knit fraternity of airmen. The school's thinking on the employment of air power focused on the capabilities of yet-to-be-developed four-engine bombers, equipped with the precision sighting instruments necessary for pinpoint targeting. This aircraft finally arrived in the guise of the B-17 strategic bomber, equipped with the Norden bombsight. The B-17 offered the range, the payload, and the defensive armament, but more importantly from the doctrinal point of view, the accuracy to make daylight precision bombing a reality. Its Norden bombsite, bragged Air Corps officers, allowed it to drop a bomb into a pickle barrel from 25,000 feet. Such claims, of course, should not have been taken literally, but they did signify the confidence its designers and the Air Corps had in the bombsite's accuracy, and by extension in their desire to achieve precision. It must be remembered that the Air Corps Tactical School continued to work in a rather conspiratorial environment in which their views on the strategic employment of air power were neither politically approbated by the military establishment nor Washington which was unwilling to align itself with a policy of any type of city bombing. No wonder then that as late as the 1940 edition of Air Corps Field Manual FM1-5 Employment of Aviation of the Army Stated, air operations were to be planned and executed in accordance with the overall strategic plan for the surface campaign. Of course, the airmen of the tactical school viewed matters differently and planned accordingly. From at least nineteen thirty four onwards, a core group of instructors consolidated their thinking around offense as the principal mission of the Air Corps and the strategic bomber as its principal implement. This line of thinking bypassed the tactics of the battlefield altogether and aimed directly at the enemy's industrial, political, and economic heart. By the time the United States entered the Second World War, the Air Corps, although still a subordinate of the Army, possessed a thoroughly strategic theory of air power, guiding its force structure and operations. That theory, which targeted the enemy's economic web, not its populace, which was a key distinction between it and the RAF's doctrine, was known by the slightly awkward name of High Altitude Unescorted Precision Bombing and was encompassed in the AWPD-1 planning document. It represented a thoroughly independent and war-winning view of air power. World War II gave the air power advocates another chance to put their ideas into practice. By then, both Mitchell and Duhay had passed away, but Trenchard had gone off into retirement knowing that a whole generation of airmen had been indoctrinated in strategic bombing in the officer schools he had established in the interwar period as Marshal of the RAF. Although the war saw the employment of aircraft on an unprecedented scale and the establishment of the nearly independent United States Army Air Force, the existing gulf between the promise of air power as outlined in doctrine and its reality continued to remain quite fast the combined bomber offensive mounted by both the royal air force and the u.s army air force pounded germany around the clock with thousands of heavy bombers destroying marshalling yards petroleum depots electrical power generation stations and luftwaffe bases And yet, German industrial output continued to rise, rather than fall, through 1944. The much-touted civilizational collapse simply did not happen, and it was not until Allied forces were at Hitler's doorstep that Germany conceded defeat. Other aspects of the theory weren't working out as planned either. Unescorted bombers were picked off with ruthless efficiency by Luftwaffe fighters and AAA defenses. The bomber did always get through, but the cost in lives and materiel was stunning. Only after May 1944 did Army Air Force bomb totals exceed the total bomber losses over Europe, as expressed in tonnage. The horror of the trenches had simply followed the bomber crews into the sky. Moreover, and despite the Norden bombsight, the bombers had real trouble hitting their targets. Some estimates suggest only a 5% hit rate against city block-sized targets. Whatever the bombing campaign was, it was certainly not as Duhay, Trenchard, or Mitchell had predicted. The theorists had indisputably put forth innovative and compelling ideas about the employment of air power, but in doing so had let their imaginations run wild and failed to recognize the limitations of technology. Many of the scenarios proposed by them simply were not viable given the technology of the time. But it was more than just a technological limitation. Successfully bombing strategic targets required not only adequate range, payload, a true precision bombing capability, and all weather systems, It also required a host of other capabilities without which the campaign could not work. Things like suppression of enemy defenses, accurate targeting intelligence, and a clear understanding of the link between target destruction and its coercive effect on the enemy. That modern-day air power is still grappling with these issues today is indicative of how unrealistic they were when Duhay, Trenchard, and Mitchell proposed them. AWPD-1 and its successors stood on nothing more than the shaky ground upon which it was built. That is to say, decades-old popular air power preconceptions transmuted into expectations of results and ultimately codified, despite never being rigorously tested, as official service doctrine. Specifically, the strategic bombing theory, as developed by the Tactical School, reflected a noble but untested desire to coerce a nation militarily through indirect political or economic means, rather than through sheer destruction and depopulation. In effect, to target machines and institutions, not people. The quite fundamental flaws in that theory, or even the fact that precision bombardment in practice resulted in area bombardment, hardly hindered the service from unifying behind it to achieve its organizational goals. On the contrary, the strength of the theory lay not in its factual accuracy, but in its ability to provide an unwavering airpower narrative around which airmen could rally around to drive towards independence. Although the experience of World War II shook every one of the theory's assumptions to the core, it did little to dissuade the Air Force's rapidly ossifying strategic culture. And so the bombing continued, in part because of the prosaic reason that Allied air forces were set up at considerable expense and resources for strategic bombardment, but also because the bombers were indisputably having an effect on German and Japanese war-making potential. But more importantly, the airmen who had staked their reputations and the case for independence on strategic bombardment held on to the idea in the hopes that it would achieve what they claimed it would do. By this point, the political disincentives to change had become too strong. The truth was that the Army Air Force's air power vision did not stand up well to close scrutiny. How could it? The Air Corps tactical school instructors who devised the economic web theory by which wartime, unescorted high-altitude precision daylight bombardment was carried out had little background themselves in economics. Their web theory was based on anecdotal observation of Depression-era labor disturbances occurring on the eastern seaboard of the United States. The multi-billion dollar wartime expansion plan, AWPD-1, was created by six staff officers over nine days working with adding machines in extreme heat and humidity, largely without intelligence information, while basing their calculations on practice bombings flown in clear weather and at low altitudes. It would take a Political sleight of hand in the shape of the United States Strategic Bombing Survey and the tangibly better results of the Pacific Campaign to save the floundering doctrine of strategic bombardment, validate in principle, if not in detail, its claim to strategic decisiveness, and ensure that gains made during the war were consolidated into bureaucratic success of the post-war period. Independence remained the overarching organizational goal of the top Air Force leadership, and its impulse had grown so powerful as to prevail over any other consideration, moral or other. Wide-scale incendiary bombardment of Japanese population centers didn't resemble precision, and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki made a mockery of the concept. But the sheer destructive power of atomic weaponry made any earlier misjudgments of air power doctrine immaterial to the absolutist bomber generals, who had staked their careers and personal reputations on the veracity of their argument, the bomb's destructive power simply blasted away all doubts of the ability of air forces to win wars independently. Following the war, the difficult questions concerning the effectiveness of strategic bombardment were ignored by the public, Congress, the Air Force, and many others. Despite the challenges... The Air Force came out of World War II with its pre-war conception of air power surprisingly intact, the hard experience of the war seemingly changing very little of the airmen's conceptions. Airmen instead directed the weight of their efforts to consolidating the considerable institutional gains made during the war. General Carl Spatz, soon to be Chief of Staff of the post-war Air Force, enthused that air power was the first war instrument of history, "'capable of stopping the heart mechanism of a great industrialized enemy "'and striking his military power at the core. "'Such statements suggest that the Air Force's post-war policies "'remain shaped by the need to ensure congruency "'between doctrine and organizational goals, "'the gaining of independence being most prominent among those.'" Either way, Air Force leaders recognized that neither political inclination nor public opinion was prepared to support a vast wartime military and industrial complex into the post-war period. Defense appropriations were cut from a wartime high of 40% to 4% of gross domestic product in 1947, while Air Force strength shrank from a high of 2.3 million personnel to its post-war low of 304,000 at about the same time, a Gallup poll of Americans indicated that if defense dollars were to be spent to contain Soviet expansion and guard against the possibility of an atomic Pearl Harbor, they would best be spent on a powerful air force. The air force responded with a comprehensive vision of post-war air power in which it would continue to fight America's wars efficiently, technologically, and more importantly, with far less manpower than required by the army and air power's protective reach could efficiently extend to the defense of America's war-weakened allies in Europe and the Pacific. The Air Force thus staked its claim as the custodian and delivery agent of America's ultimate technological defense, the nuclear weapon. The nuclear-armed bomber, as a symbolic expression of America's technical, industrial, and military prowess, became inextricably linked to America's post-war security, its growing hegemony, and the vision by which the air force defined itself air power thus allowed america to come to grips with its new superpower status without making superpower commitments in troops and resources awpd1 and its successors stood on nothing more than the shaky ground upon which it was built that is to say decades old popular air power preconceptions transmuted into expectations of results and ultimately codified, despite never being rigorously tested, as official service doctrine. Specifically, the strategic bombing theory, as developed by the Air Corps Tactical School, reflected a noble but untested desire to coerce a nation militarily through indirect political or economic means rather than through sheer destruction and depopulation. In effect, to target machines and institutions, not people. The quite fundamental flaws in that theory, or even the fact that precision bombardment in practice resulted in area bombardment, hardly hindered the service from unifying behind it to achieve its organizational goals. On the contrary, the strength of the theory lay not in its factual accuracy, but in its ability to provide an unwavering air power narrative around which airmen could rally around to drive towards independence. Although the experience of World War II shook every one of the theory's assumptions to the core, it did little to dissuade the Air Force's rapidly ossifying strategic culture. And so the bombing continued in part because of the prosaic reason that Allied Air Forces were set up at considerable expense and resources for strategic bombardment but also because the bombers were indisputably having an effect on German and Japanese war-making potential. But more importantly, the airmen who had staked their reputations and the case for independence on strategic bombardment held on to the idea in the hopes that it would achieve what they claimed it would do. By this point, the political disincentives to change had become too strong. The truth was that the Army Air Force's air power vision did not stand up well to close scrutiny. How could it? The Air Corps Tactical School instructors who devised the economic web theory by which their practice of strategic bombardment was carried out had little background in economics. Their web theory was based on anecdotal observation of Depression-era labor disturbances occurring on the eastern seaboard of the United States. The multi-billion dollar expansion plan, AWPD-1, was created by six staff officers over nine days, working with adding machines in extreme heat and humidity, largely without intelligence information, while basing their calculations on practice bombings flown in clear weather and at low altitudes. It would take a political sleight of hand in the shape of the United States Strategic Bombing Survey and the tangibly better results of the Pacific campaign to save the floundering doctrine of strategic bombardment, validate in principle, if not in detail, its claim to strategic decisiveness, and ensure that gains made during the war were consolidated into bureaucratic successes of the post-war period. Independence remained the overarching organizational goal of the top Air Force leadership, and its impulse had grown so powerful as to prevail over any consideration, moral or other. wide-scale incendiary bombardment of Japanese population centers didn't resemble precision. And the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki made a mockery of the concept. But the sheer destructive power of atomic weaponry made any earlier misjudgments of air power doctrine immaterial. To the absolutist bomber generals, who had staked their careers and personal reputations on the veracity of their argument, the bomb's destructive power simply blasted away all doubts of the ability of air forces to win wars independently. Following the war, the difficult questions concerning the effectiveness of strategic bombardment were ignored by the public, Congress, the Air Force, and many others. Despite the challenges, the Air Force came out of World War II with its pre-war conception of air power surprisingly intact, the hard experience of the war seemingly changing very little of the airmen's conception of war. Airmen instead directed the weight of their efforts to consolidating the considerable institutional gains made during the war. General Carl Spatz, soon to be chief of staff of the post-war Air Force, enthused that air power was the first war instrument of history capable of stopping the heart mechanism of a great industrialized enemy and striking his military power at the core. Such statements suggested that the Air Force's post-war policies remained shaped by the need to ensure congruency between doctrine and organizational goals, the gaining of independence, of course, being most prominent among those. Either way, Air Force leaders recognized that neither political inclination nor public opinion was prepared to support a vast wartime, military, and industrial complex into the post-war period. Defense appropriations were cut from a wartime high of 40% down to 4% of gross domestic product in 1947, while Air Force strength shrank from a high of 2.3 million personnel to its post-war low of 304,000 with its force structure and missions increasingly subordinated to the ideas of civilian nuclear strategists the ownership of theory had shifted from the air force to the pentagon whiskids who called it the Turrence theory not air power theory or even aerospace power theory although the effect of these changes was to decouple air force doctrine from national security strategy the air force itself continued to remain wedded to the manned bomber and the absolute destruction of massive retaliation, even as the culture of strategic air power had ceased to make sense in anything but the most abstract sense, and even then only within the logic of its precisely defined criteria. A rapid succession of unanswered political and technological challenges followed. SAC was knocked off its high perch atop the defense hierarchy and sent tumbling towards organizational oblivion. For 15 years, the nuclear-armed strategic bomber had powered the SAC-dominated Air Force on a remarkable upwards trajectory. But the organization was now entering an unpowered, ballistic phase of flight, initiating what Carl Bilder described as a slow fall from grace. SAC continued to command vast resources of technology and people, but the political, technological and public tides had turned against it. The strategic bomber and its doctrine of employment lay grievously wounded after its encounter with McNamara and the rapidly proliferating ICBM forces. Although the bomber would receive one more chance at redemption over the skies of Vietnam, What the war actually did was to drive the final stake through the line of air power thinking that had begun with Mitchell and the Air Corps Tactical School, and grown relentlessly through the Cold War period. For the bomber culture, which had persisted in leadership positions less as a function of its continued relevance to strategic deterrence, but rather by the inertia of the power acquired, the Vietnam War took away the last remnants of that inertia when the vietnam war came the air force confined as it was to the highly specialized nuclear single integrated operational plan (SIOp), had lost much of its ability to fight a limited war it was generally incapable of carrying out such routine tasks as examination of target vulnerabilities or even effectively grasping the process of target selection and destruction indeed many of SAC's bombers had lost the capability of conducting conventional operations of any significance, and action in the Vietnam War necessitated the conversion of some B-52s under the Big Belly program to allow them to volumetrically accommodate the tonnage of bombs they were capable of lifting. Thus, entering Vietnam with PSYOP-inspired tactics only slightly modified to reflect circumstances. The Air Force insisted that their bombing doctrine suited the nature of the war, when in fact the opposite was probably true. Air commanders had molded the war to suit their doctrine. At the outset of hostilities, the Air Force brain trust, led by LeMay, but imminently to be succeeded by General Joseph McConnell, proposed a 94 target list geared more appropriately to the destruction of a major industrialized state's vital production facilities than to Vietnam's primarily agrarian economy and political circumstances. The objectives in Vietnam confounded air power orthodoxy, not only because the country possessed few of the technological things so defining of the American way of war, but because it readily substituted and expended people over things. One Vietnam-era pilot explained in exasperation, the enemy didn't produce or manufacture anything except people. Ultimately, strategic air power failed in Vietnam because the political objective of the U.S. government did not coincide with Air Force doctrine. And even more importantly, North Vietnamese society did not conform with that doctrine. The Air Force promised too much, and found itself once again trying to reconcile the incongruities between its theory and quite readily demonstrable reality. Only now, far fewer players had any vested interest in ensuring that the mythologized efficacy of strategic bombardment be propped up. The political class had lost interest long ago, while SAC's strength within its own service, not to say anything of its standing within the inter-service hierarchy, had visibly diminished. So, despite operations such as Linebacker II, which clearly did show some effectiveness in the coercive power of strategic bombing, the Vietnam War, on the whole, did not reinforce the case for the supremacy of strategic bombardment. SAC and its increasingly aging leadership of World War II-era airmen was soon to be supplanted by the fighter pilots, who had made great gains during Vietnam and who would assume increasingly senior roles within the Air Force leadership hierarchy. The demographic change was stunning. Whereas in 1975, bomber generals outnumbered fighter generals two to one on the air staff, by 1982, no bomber generals remained on the air staff at all, and a fighter general would within three years be at the helm of SAC itself. This would lead the Air Force into an interesting 15-year relationship with the Army on an innovative doctrine to fight Soviet armed forces in Europe. I am speaking here, of course, of the Irland battle, but we'll have more on that later. With Vietnam over, the U.S. services turned to Europe and the alarming growth in Soviet military capability of the 1970s and 80s the soviets having attained and then surpassed strategic nuclear parity with the west simultaneously forged ahead with a conventional forces modernization program intended to make those same nuclear forces unnecessary to achieve victory the scale of the buildup was astounding soviet nuclear arsenals were enriched during the 1977 to 83 time frame by 1500 icbms and 1300 slbms at a time when the United States procured 10% of that number of ICBMs and a third of SLBMs. At peak output in the years 1983 to 87 over 3,500 heavy tanks a year rolled off Soviet production lines. By the early 1980s Soviet armored forces wielded a localized 5 to 1 advantage in tanks against selected elements of NATO. In the same time frame Soviet Air Forces gained 250 bombers and 5,000 fighters at a time when the U.S. purchased no strategic bombers and roughly 60% of the number of Soviet fighters. Soviet factories churned out a first-line fighter on average every seven hours, or the equivalent of a squadron a week, a wing a month. Moreover, across-the-board increases in the quantity of Soviet material were accompanied by concomitant increases in its technological quality and innovative doctrines of employment. One such area of doctrinal improvement was the increasing proclivity for night and bad weather operations, demonstrated to great effect by the Soviet client states of Syria and Egypt during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. The war would provide direction for modernizing and professionalizing the post-Vietnam U.S. armed forces by confirming the lethality of the modern battlefield, the importance of combined arms operations, and the mutual interdependence of air and ground forces. The Israeli Air Force lost 50 aircraft, almost all to SAMs, in the first three days of combat, and ultimately would go on to lose 115 aircraft out of a total of 500 in its inventory. Notably, the vast majority of losses, around the 100, were to -to surface-to-air defenses. The Syrian and Egyptian air forces lost over 50% of their combined 800 aircraft fleet. Such high attrition sent shockwaves through both NATO and the Warsaw Pact and forced serious revision of the logistical and war planning requirements for the European theater. Advances in microprocessor technology were now driving a revolution in ground and aerial warfare. New anti-tank missiles facilitated effective engagement ranges up to four times greater than had been possible during World War II. The U.S. Army's newly established Training and Doctrine Command, TRADOC, soon got working on the problem. Within a few short years, it would begin to produce innovative solutions to fighting a ground war against the Warsaw Pact that would integrate very closely armoured forces with elements of the Air Force's tactical air command. This cooperation would eventually lead to the doctrine of air battle. While the Army planned to fight the land war in Europe, the Air Force's continued post-Vietnam evolution saw it undertake a dramatic recapitalization of its aircraft and weapons fleet, introduction of improvements in training and education, and continuing to transform demographically. The capabilities and organizational significance of the Tactical Air Forces, the TAF, during the post-Vietnam period grew in leaps and bounds. The fighter pilots, now increasingly occupying leadership positions, almost universally accepted That the European theatre would primarily be a ground theatre in which the army would take the doctrinal lead. Not only were the TAF historically predisposed to work that way, one TAC commander, for example, asserting that his commitment to supporting the army was chipped in granite, but their recent experience working with the army in Vietnam reinforced practically their statutorily mandated relationship. As a consequence, a large body of airmen and future commanders became accustomed to employing air power in a supporting role. And support they did the Army's plans for Europe. As TRADOC continued to refine its maneuver warfighting doctrines, the Air Force followed along in its wake. With fighter pilots in the lead, TAC and the TAF in general assumed a much greater importance in defining Air Force-wide roles and missions and the fighter and attack pilots were perfectly comfortable working with the army and felt no desire to prove that they could win wars independently. By the time airland battle became doctrine, it had already begun to significantly shape the Air Force's force structure, capabilities, and way of thinking about warfare. Anchoring European theater plans would be a generation of new fighters ...capable of night and all-weather operations deep within Warsaw Pact territory. By 1980, the TAF were fully committed to fulfilling their second echelon strike requirements. The Air Force adopted, without reservation, the micro-circuit-driven environment of precision weaponry... ...night all-weather operations and low-observable technology. The tactical fighter roadmap, largely based on the Army's vision for a joint war in Europe called for force increases to 40 wing equivalents by the early 1990s. During 1982 to 1986 alone the Air Force arsenal was enriched by 850 frontline fighter and attack aircraft, many of which were explicitly justified by the need to fight a conventional war in Europe, and many of which were pushing the limits of technology. Many of these high-technology systems, the F-117s, the F-15Es, Lantern, AMRAM, and others, came to powerfully and enduringly define Air Force capabilities and successes in subsequent decades, most notably during the 1991 Persian Gulf War, but to the present day as well. The tactical air forces received a tremendous infusion of aircraft, materiel and technology, driven as they were by airline battle requirements and the rich years of the Reagan defense buildup. But TAC lost any pretense to the concept of air power as a war winning instrument. Because the TAC position increasingly reflected the service wide position, airline battle concepts found their way into the mainstream of Air Force thinking particularly at the tactical and operational levels. By the time of the 1991 Persian Gulf War, Operations Plan 1002-90, the contingency plan for the region, effectively reflected air-land battle principles, i.e. not air-minded principles. The operations plan for the theater commands at USAFI and PASAF were similarly imbued. This was one level Uh, of a stunning rejection of the line of thinking that had sustained American air power through the lean interwar years, given birth to an independent air force in 1947, and propelled it to premier status among the services during the Cold War years. So, despite having built up what was surely the most sophisticated and powerful air force in history, by the late 1980s, a splinter group of airmen, that viewed air power through the prism of its broad historical context began to openly resist the Air Force's limiting relationship with the Army, determined to end its association with air battle. This group challenged the reality that with TAC wedded to supporting the Army's war-fighting plans and SAC sitting on nuclear alert, the true believers in strategic bombardment theory found themselves without a natural home a faction of airmen, led notably by Generals Michael J. Dugan and Charles G. Boyd and Colonel John A. Warden, undertook to deliberately infuse contrary ideas into Air Force thinking about air power. These men, supported by a cast of active and retired senior officers, Major General Perry M. Smith, most prominent among them, made up the nucleus of an air power revival that would see the return of the Air Force to an independently-minded, strategically-focused service. The movement solidified around opposition to the prevalent Army-centric thinking about air power. Warden vehemently disagreed with Airline Battle's treatment of air power as tactically supporting Army operations. Such a scheme, he argued, suppressed broad thinking about air power and that, to the air power reformists who pushed above all for broad concepts and ideas above tactics and technology, was a cardinal sin. Warden was determined that both senior and mid-career officers reacquaint themselves with thinking in terms of operational systems effects rather than merely the tactics and destructive capabilities of their own systems. Warden's ideas first articulated in a research paper written while he attended the National Defense University and enthusiastically supported by its commandant, Major General Smith, proved the rallying cry around which this nascent intellectual revival coalesced. The work analyzed air warfare at the operational level of war to propose and describe how an air-driven campaign might be employed independently to achieve strategic goals in war. Using historical examples, the study, later published as a monograph titled The Air Campaign, Planning for Combat, pointed out, amongst other things, the Luftwaffe's failings as a tactically oriented air force preoccupied with the battlefield and incapable of strategic power projection. It suggested that its abandonment of a Duhessian outlook following the 1936 death of its chief proponent, General Walter Wever, meant that Germany had to defeat its enemies in close combat the same way that armies had opposed each other for centuries. The message was obvious from the historical and contemporary perspectives. Germany's tactical orientation meant that it had entered a war with doctrine and equipment that were inadequate to the task. Was America's land-centric preparation for the defense of NATO, as outlined in Airland Battle, similarly inadequate? Warden thought so. His philosophy, like the philosophy of his predecessors at the Air Corps Tactical School, revolved around targeting the sources, not the manifestations of national power. Conceptualizing the target array as a set of five rings with the military represented as the outermost ring and the national leadership at the inner ring, the model furnished the theoretical framework around which the resurgent air power movement could advance air power as an inherently independent and strategic instrument. Warden argued that the rings clearly showed that the military was a shield or spear for the whole system, not the essence of the system, and that given a choice, he said, even in something so simple as personal combat, we certainly wouldn't make destruction of our enemy's shield our end game. Arguing against the Clausewitzian conception of war, warden suggested that the destruction of the enemy military was not the essence of war and the essence of war was in fact convincing the enemy to accept our position fighting his military force was at best a means to an end and at worst a total waste of time and energy not surprisingly warden's ideas initially found little approbation outside of the small circle of like-minded airmen it might have stayed that way if not for a fortuitous set of circumstances that placed him in command of the Air Staff's Directorate of Warfighting Concepts, colloquially known as Checkmate, at about the time when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Tasked almost by accident with providing an air power contingency plan to the Middle East crisis, Warden, in the time-honored tradition of crusading airmen before him, took it upon himself to create not only an independent war-winning plan, but one that will restore the Air Force to the position of preeminence, among the other services." The crisis in the Gulf graphically illustrated how far down the airland battle road the Air Force had traveled. Not only were the canned operations plans for the region oriented toward airland battle-style close air support and battlefield air interdiction, but the CENTAF computer-assisted force management system, by way which the theater air tasking order (the ATO) was constructed and transmitted, contained no category for strategic strike only the aforementioned close air support and interdiction. Warden's proposal, the Instant Thunder War Plan, would be subsequently described as a latter-day AWPD-1. But the sometimes overlooked aspect of that comparison is that Warden, like his predecessors at the Air Corps Tactical School, was looking to create a document that would reestablish air power as a politically favored instrument of war. Because the plan serve both military and political ends, its military utility remained shaped and constrained by its necessity to fit bureaucratic political goals. During the interwar period of the Air Corps Tactical School, that goal was the establishment of an independent service. During Warden's era, it was the de facto re-establishment of independence from a service and a doctrine which the Air Force had become symbiotically tied to. Warden like the Mitchells and Duhays before him, crusaded for air power, and like his predecessors, he would pay a price for it. Of course, Warden's ideas required the right tools, and in this area, the capabilities of the Air Force's combat arsenal, much of it developed under TAC General Creech's tutelage, had never been so impressive. Massive increases in the capability of fighter aircraft, made possible by a host of technological developments in precision strike and other areas, redefined the possible of fighter operations. The progress was astounding. One Air Force study showed that the new F-15E, armed with precision munitions, was 98% more effective than an F-4 armed with conventional iron bombs. Warden's vision therefore took into account these new capabilities to reject the relatively straightforward conceptions of tactical air forces as battlefield support platforms and to move towards more complex, centralized, theater-wide operational perspectives in which air power served as a means to strategic ends. Instant Thunder was rather like a thinking man's conventional PSYOP, with the difference residing primarily in the desired outcome, the former trying to paralyze the nation, the latter to destroy it. Suffice it to say, once the air campaign got underway, Instant Thunder achieved all its goals and more, and set up the Air Force in a very advantageous position for the post-Cold War drawdown. Warden, at that time, found a sympathizer in Secretary of the Air Force Donald B. Rice. Who also wanted to carve out an independent and more prominent role for air power within the emerging post-Cold War national security strategy. A politically savvy former head of RAND, Rice understood that the Cold War's ending would take away the Air Force's primary mission of strategically deterring the Soviet Union and bring to a close the permissive Reagan-era defense budgets. At the same time, the revolution in military affairs imminently to burst wide open, offered air power in particular at disproportionate advantage in national security policy. The Secretary wished to articulate a strategic vision, a slogan or a catchphrase to capture and inspire that role in national security. He therefore sanctioned the Global Reach, Global Power white paper, declaring it official Air Force policy for the new era. Prepared by then-Major David Deptila, Under the aegis of Warden's Checkmate Division the paper presented a vision of air power used in a conventional global power projection role employing precision weaponry within the context of regional contingencies. More importantly it suggested that air power with its near instant availability, precision, and lethality might constitute the dominant force of the post-Cold War period. This was a radical idea at a time when the majority of the Air Force's non-strategic, i.e. non-nuclear forces, remained tied to the Army missions in support of airland battle. Even more radical was its suggestion that tactical air power could prove decisive and have a strategic impact. Indeed, the paper did much to outline new organizational approaches to air power, notably laying the groundwork for reorganizing air forces into the movers of the Air Mobility Command and the shooters of the Air Combat Command. Conspicuously, the shooters would no longer be subdivided into nuclear strategic shooters of SAC and conventional tactical shooters of TAC, but simply shooters. On the strength of the success of Instant Thunder, the ideas inherent in global reach, global power, entered the mainstream of Air Force air power thinking. Warden polemically argued that Instant Thunder demonstrated that through air power, the United States could achieve virtually all military objectives without recourse to weapons of mass destruction. His boasts were not entirely overstated. The growing lethality of conventional precision weapons certainly approximated nuclear weaponry in its coercive effects. By synthesizing many of the classical air power theories with the emerging technological and political realities of the late 20th century, Warden argued that by thinking in operational level or strategic terms, the primary task of war, namely political coercion, could be simplified enormously. Here is a quote to show his thinking on the subject. We may not have to find and destroy 30,000 tanks if we can destroy their few hundred associated fuel or ammunition distribution points. We may not have to destroy the few hundred fuel distribution points if we can immobilize an entire society by destroying dozens of electrical generation systems. And we may not need to destroy dozens of electrical generation systems if we can capture kill or isolate the enemy leader. Such thinking focused on the sources of national power, although perceptions of what exactly those sources might be had changed appreciably since the interwar period. Whereas his Air Corps Tactical School predecessors believed in breaking the will of the enemy nation. Warden focused on the more nuanced concept of breaking the will of the enemy leadership. Global reach, global power, dominated Air Force thinking throughout the 1990s, culminating in the 1999 Kosovo War and NATO's response Operation Allied Force. Combat operations featured almost no army forces, and the air war over Serbia was all one big strategic air campaign, as NATO air power hit strategic targets such as command and control centers and political emplacements, and only later gave attention to Serbian fielded forces. Air power polemicists heralded Kosovo as proof that air power could win wars independently, and there was certainly some validity in their claims. But it was also the last gasp of classically applied air power before the September 11 attacks that set air forces on an entirely different path once again. But that is another topic for another day. Today's episode of Air War Project took a very broad brush to some of the historical thinking and events that shaped the last century of air power. The aircraft and its military application through the concept of air power developed rapidly propelled as it was by two world wars and a dedicated, if not outright fanatical coterie of airmen who were willing to put their personal and professional reputations on the line to advance their innovative, if sometimes far-fetched ideas about the war-winning characteristics of strategic aerial attack. The air power story has been about tremendous technological progress, innovation and the daring of individual air crews who helped to write its history. But it has also been about the over-promises of its supporters and its inability to come to terms with its position within the pantheon of warfare. Although the airplane has existed as a weapon of war for just over a century, the rich history of air combat and the innovative ideas that shaped its employment provide rich fodder for further study. The Air War Project is exactly about that, to study the many fascinating ideas, histories, and personalities that constitute the air power story. We hope you will find it as interesting as we do.